For marketing agencies and social media managers looking to prove the value of their work, I've got something special for you. Agora Pulse is not only Social Media Examiner's tool of choice as an all-in-one social media management tool, it also allows you to track the traffic, conversion, and revenue from every social post, comment, and private message. Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com SME today. Again, agorapulse.com SME. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what works with social media. Today, I'm going to be joined by Robert Rose, and we're going to explore content marketing strategy. If you are wondering how to develop a content marketing strategy for your business, and you're also wondering how AI should fit into your content strategy, you're going to find today's interview absolutely fascinating. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter slash X. If you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show so you don't miss any of our future content. And for those of you that can probably tell, I am suffering a little bit of a cold that may be apparent throughout today's interview, but thank you for bearing with me. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Robert Rose. Helping you to simplify your social safari. Here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Robert Rose. If you don't know who Robert is, you need to know Robert. He is content strategist and author of the book, Content Marketing Strategy, Harness the Power of Your Brand's Voice. He's also the founder of the Content Advisory, a consultancy that helps brands develop their content strategy. And he's co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the This Old Marketing Podcast. Robert, welcome back to the show. How are you doing today? I am so good, my friend. It is so great to be back with you. It has been far, far too long. Yes. Well, I'm excited to have you here today. Robert and I are going to explore content marketing strategy in the age of this AI world that we're in right now. <laughs> now, my question, and we're going to get into AI stuff a little bit later in the interview, but sure. my question is content marketing strategy. Talk to me about strategy, right? And why strategy is so important? Because I believe, and I bet you believe this to be the case as well, that a lot of people just publish content and there's absolutely no strategy. So why ought we have strategy, Robert? Talk to us a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. I mean, because, you know, they always say, you know, you should come to a book and writing a book with a big question rather than a big answer. Right. And and so the the, the question was, you know, <laughs> does the world need a, another book about content marketing? Really? Does it does it really need one? And the answer was no, of course. <laughs> so what I wanted to write a book about was all of the books that I'd seen out there, including by the way, my others, had been about the first two words, right? Either content or marketing and not really about strategy. And so I lean heavily on certainly one of my virtual mentors, as it were, Michael Porter, the amazing business professor and, and, and thought leader in the space, on his definition of strategy, meaning what are the activities that we fit together in a business to create competitive advantage? And so it basically, what are the things that we do? In other words, the people, the activities that those people do, and the actual output of those activities. What are those things and how do we fit them together because as he talks about, the idea of a competitive advantage in strategy is either, 
doing different activities than your competitors or doing the same activities in a completely different way. And at the heart of it, that's what we're thinking about when we think about doing content marketing, whether you're a team of one and a solopreneur or you're a team of thousands and you're trying to integrate into a broader marketing strategy, content marketing activities, the things that we do are fundamentally different. So I wanted to really talk about all of the things that we've seen over the last decade of working with as many companies as we have in terms of the things that they're doing differently, the ways that they're operating like a media company, the ways that they're creating workflow and governance and the technologies and the ways that they're creating charters for their teams. That's the heart of a great content marketing strategy, which has nothing to, or little to do with the actual content that we're creating on a day-by-day basis. You know, I would love to hear your thoughts on this because I think so many people use the word strategy and really mean tactics, right? So That's right, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the distinguishing differences from your perspective between a tactic and a strategy. So the tactic is basically the things that we do that ultimately have an outcome that move us toward the plan or the objective that we have, right? So the strategy is how are we going to fit all of those things together? In other words, all of the things that we know we need to do, the individual jobs, the tasks, the things, the projects, the initiatives that we need to put into play, those are all the tactical things that we'll need to do in order to meet some broader objective. The strategy is what are all those things, you know, what's the forest? Basically, how are we building the overarching plan in order to fit together all of those things so that they work together. That is the true nature of a strategy is how are we fitting all those small pieces together so that they're not siloed. You know, one of the things that I notice so often these days in business, and this goes for marketing strategy when we think about it, is we're so focused on the individual tactics at the individual team level. You know, what is the social media team doing? What is the content team doing? What's the demand gen team doing? And they all have their various tactics for how they make their little world a little better or perform a little higher or do whatever they need to do, but they don't fit together with what everybody else is doing. And a classic example of this is when two teams are creating content for two separate channels and they're actually weirdly competing for the same audience. They're competing for the same part of the buyer's journey. They're competing for the same eyeballs and attention. And so they not only don't work together, but they work against each other. And so that's the clear indication that there's no strategy, even if the tactics themselves may actually be pretty smart. Okay, this is not part of my original questions, but I think is a relevant next question for me to ask you is who ought to be the strategist, right? Because depending on the size of the organization, there might not be any clear, obvious strategist. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, it's a team sport. I would say, because that's the whole nature of of what we're doing in a business is that it is a collection of people trying to work toward a common objective. I mean, not to lean too heavily again on another mentor, but Peter Drucker, who said the only difference between the social groups that we think of as social groups and a business is that a business's objective is to create customers. So it's a social group directed to build customers. And so it's a collaborative effort. But ultimately, if there's, you know, usually I would say a decider or at least a couple of deciders and whether that's your CEO or your CMO, your head of marketing or literally, you know, the receptionist, it doesn't matter. Just somebody needs to actually own the idea of coming up with the overarching set of objectives and the plan in order to get there so that the tactics themselves can be 
sort of conjoined in a, in a smart way. You know, I think so much about the fact that I try to be a strategist. It's my number one strength on strength finders. And it's kind of the way that I find myself defaulting, which is to try to connect the bigger things together and see how they all intertwine, like you mentioned earlier. But I also find myself oftentimes listening to a podcast not unlike this podcast, where I get somebody on here and they talk about this incredible tactic that they've utilized to generate some really great response, right? Maybe it's like a short form video process, or maybe it's like a Facebook ads to generate more leads. And I find myself really getting excited about that. And then just wanting to go out and do all the work related to creating that one thing. And then I find myself doing it again and again and again, right? And we were talking, we were prepping for this, that this seems to be one of the big problems that a lot of people struggle with when it comes to content marketing. Is that true? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, 100%. You know, I think what you've outlined is completely accurate, right? So strategy is not the vision and it's not the tactics. It's the thing that is in between. So I would consider myself a strategist as well because I'm not a visionary guy. I've, I've never been sort of a, you know, the big vision sort of, this is what I see in the future of the world. What I'm really good at is someone tells me a vision and I can tell you the roadmap or I can build the logical and effective plan and roadmap for getting there. And so I'm neither a tactician, like I can't tell you interesting things about how to do SEO better or how to do email marketing better or how to do those kinds of things. I have long depended on the experts in those tactical areas for the expert advice that I need. And I'm not a visionary, but I'm the guy who can bring those things together into an overarching set of activities and plans that pull it together. So in my mind, I'm a strategist. Now, what that means from a content marketing perspective is exactly the same thing. It is not about whether we should write 10 blog posts or whether the blog posts should be listicles or whether they should be these kinds of things or those kinds of things or whether we should be trying for organic reach. The strategy itself is how are we fitting together the operation of content as a strategic function in our business so that all those activities work together. As I've said, I mean, maybe too cutely, it's your tweetable moment, I suppose, is that the job of a great strategic content team is not to be good at content, it's to make the business good at content. Love it. Okay. So in light of all this, how should we rethink those, when I say we, I mean anybody who's listening, who's in a marketing capacity, how should we rethink our content strategy in light of some of the things that you've written about in your book? Where do we start when it comes to our thinking process? I get that question a lot, like from a CEO or a business owner, an entrepreneur to say, okay, what's the first step here? Like, And the answer is just to our discussion of the last five minutes is put somebody in charge of it, make it real, make it a thing, right? Make the creation of an operation of content as a strategic part of your business, like a thing where you're actually have a charter for this team or for this person, if you're a one person shop, what is the purpose? What is their purpose in, that they're trying to get to? In other words, what is their overarching objective that we're trying to fit into all these different activities? And then what are those activities? The we call in, in the book, I call it an operating model, right? What is your overall operating model of content? And I, in the book, I provide sort of a four different kinds of objectives that you might have as a content strategy where you're either trying to become, you know, an owned media expert where you're truly becoming and operating like a media company or whether you're trying to inject great content into a classic 
direct marketing strategy, or you're trying to understand how to put in the technical processes, the SEO, the sort of, let's call it content as operation into your business, because you're going to let everybody else sort of do their own thing. Or if you're trying to get into sort of content as a business model, right, where we see you know, I mean, the classic example of this is Red Bull, right? Where, you know, I mean, I'm contractually obligated to mention Red Bull because we're talking about content marketing, but here's Red Bull, right? The thing that they understand is it needs to be its own platform. Red Bull Media House is its own business within the business of Red Bull. So it's figuring out what is the charter and purpose and function of that team first, then to say, great, what is our content plan coming out of that overall objective and how do those activities all fit together so that we can scale it, so that we can do it consistently. So that's the real key of a great first step is how do we make these sets of activities a real thing in our business? Is Red Bull a client, by the way? You mentioned something. I've, we've spoken to them a lot, but they have never hired us for any. Okay. So let's just maybe take Red Bull or any other example that comes into your mind. Like I would love to just kind of help people process this in their brain. You mentioned there was like three or four different kinds of strategies you can employ. Maybe just like help people wrap their head around like what part of this is the strategy and what part of this is the tactical plan. Like if you were Red Bull, let's just, if you're familiar with it, it sounds like you are. What do you think their strategy was and how did they go about executing that in your opinion? Red Bull is a great one, but probably not the most applicable to most businesses because the story of Red Bull is very quick and, and it's it's entertaining for sure, which is, you know, they, they started by understanding the fact that, that as they were at all these races that they were sponsoring, these Formula One races and, and other kinds of races that they were at, that the sponsorships, they would go down literally with a printing press. And as they were at the, the race itself, they would print up the winners, the actual winners of the race. And which were people were way more interested in than reading a leaflet about, you know, the soft drink or anything like that. This was a marketing piece of marketing material that ultimately had their logo all over it and everything like that and talked about, you know, the Red Bull, the drink or Red Bull, the brand. And ultimately, all drove value for their particular customer. And they saw that they got tremendous results out of that. So they, they started to understand that becoming the media, becoming the actual media that people were interested in and changing the brand into a lifestyle was really the key, was really the key to their success. And we can go add nauseam into detail about how they started to express that. But ultimately they decided that what we need to do is build a media company. Like we need to build a publishing company so that we're doing documentaries and throwing guys out of spaceships and building magazines and sponsoring races and creating events that really drove the whole thing. Monster Energy Drink did the exact, they copycatted the entire thing and have done relatively the same kind of strategy, putting almost zero money into paid advertising, but creating a lifestyle brand out of the creation of content-driven events. If we switch that over and we look at a brand or a small company that has done that, one of my favorite stories is Terminus, the ABM software platform. They started as a software company. And one of the things that they did really early on was they created a content brand called Flip My Funnel. They wrote a book and they created a wonderful platform and a blog and a series of events around the idea of Flip My Funnel. And they got it to the point where they put together this group, this team that would really work on how all of those content experiences came together as a media operation, you know, as an event, as a blog, as a resource center, 
as ultimately, you know, webinars and all the things that they were teaching around Flip My Funnel. They were, of course, taking a page out of HubSpot's playbook, which was, of course, to make inbound marketing a thing. So ultimately, the success of both somebody like HubSpot or the success of a company like Terminus was around getting into an objective, an overall objective to create value through content for an audience that aligned with whatever it is that they wanted to do. In Terminus's case, it was about educating people to account-based marketing. And HubSpot's, it was educating people in terms of what marketing automation could really be if you just called it inbound marketing. And you build an operation, teams, technology, processes, workflows that really drive that operation so that it can operate at scale. And then ultimately, it's about pulling and building those audiences so that they're much more prone to do things that you want them to do. In Terminus's example, they became so successful with it that ultimately they split the company into two, where there was a software division and sort of their media division, the Flip My Funnel division, because they were actually making money from their customer events to the extent that they could be profitable. And that's the sort of ultimate vision of what we're talking about here. But really, at the end of the day, it is how do we start understanding the operations of what we're doing as building and treating our content like a product where we're building an operation to manage that product, promote that product, distribute that product, do all the things that we would do normally as part of a core function in business and make that our marketing. Very fascinating. What I like about the Terminus example and also the Red Bull example is that in these particular cases, these brands probably especially in the case of Red Bull, we're spending ridiculous amounts of money to sponsor other people's events, right? And then they realized, wow, we could probably hire some of those people to put on our own events and create our own media, if you will, out of this, right? Because not only is it brought to you by Red Bull, but there's all sorts of good press that potentially could come from these events and experiences that they're doing that is kind of a, a bonus PR benefit that's huge for the right kind of brand, right? Is this the case in both of these? Would you say that part of the why behind both these examples is because they could generate so much goodwill and I don't know what the right phrase is, you probably know better than I do, but free media exposure, if you will, that it would pay for itself? Yeah, it's, it's captured. So look, there's there, you know, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, you know, so I've been a marketing guy for, you know, <laughs> 30 years now, you know, you and I both have the gray hair to prove it. And so at the end of the day, marketing is about one thing, which is reach and frequency, right? How many people can we reach with how much frequency? Because reach is a benefit. In other words, being able to put our message in front of an audience is the benefit and frequency is the cost. How often do we have to do that? in order for them to change the behavior that we want them to change. That's marketing in a nutshell. That's all it is. Is it how many people of my particular you know, need can I reach and how much is it gonna cost me to actually reach them and address them? And so in the age of social media and in the age of paid media, it's becoming increasingly hard to reach people with any frequency. And so what we have to do is treat it much more with a much more precious idea because the investment is high and the value is really difficult to achieve. And so what content marketing does at the end of the day is exactly as you said, it creates a level of goodwill with the audience. In other words, you have much more permission to reach them organically or through paid media if you, you know, choose to promote your own stuff. And you can reach those audiences, but the key is, is that you can convert them into what we would call a subscriber 
or more broadly speaking, I call them addressable audiences. In other words, I get to choose when I get to message this customer. So if I can address 1%, 2%, 5% of my total addressable market as a marketer, I win every time because they may not be buyers today. They may be buyers tomorrow. They may be buyers next week. But if I can keep them engaged as much of the time as I possibly can, I win when they're ready to buy because I'm always top of mind. I've always delivered value. I've delivered that goodwill. And so they start to trust me more. They start to want to do business with me more. They start to want to stay longer once they buy something. That's the real key of content marketing is how do I deliver value to the audience I want to reach so that they want to hear from me. They want to talk with me. They want to converse with me. They want to relate to me and they'll subscribe to me in order to do that like any other media company would try and get to. You know, when I think of the Marvel universe, right? You think of Marvel as a media company. What is their goal? Their goal is they have as big an audience as they can possibly muster against all of their different content properties. And the idea is develop through the idea of content, the ability to create loyalty to that audience so that every time I release something new, they're gonna spend money to do it. It's the same business model, right? We're in the same business as product and service brands these days. We're just selling different things. We're not selling the content in most cases. Love Marvel. I was just recently looking at some of the top 100 movies of all time, and there's so many Marvel movies in there. It's ridiculous. You know, it's just nuts. And so many of those obviously have just gone on to do great things. And it's just a testimony to what you're talking about. Or Mattel with Barbie, right? right. I mean, this year, Mattel has shown content marketing to be the perfect way to think about it, right? Yeah. They've completely rebooted the brand of Barbie with one movie. Yeah, and the same thing happened with the Lego movies, right? Yep, exactly. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. So outside of like massive brands like Red Bull and Marvel and stuff. It seems to me that when you talk about getting a subscription and I know, cause I run a media company and you know, cause you're part of a media company, but not everybody else knows. Like what are the equivalent subscriptions that we mean today that anyone of any size might be able to add into their strategy? Do you understand what I'm asking? I do. You know, as you very appropriately pointed out, you have a media company. I am a solopreneur right? And I would consider what I do to sort of be a content or media operation in what else I do. You know, our friend Joe Pulitzi, our, you know, there are plenty of content creators out there at the solopreneur level. There are plenty of small businesses at the small business level. There are plenty of mid-sized businesses in all industries across the different kind, you know, the spectrum. And the key is when we start thinking about that, the more that we build people who want to hear from us, the more that we build a subscriber base, if you will, the more ways, the more flexibility we have in monetizing those people. You're a perfect example. You monetize through access to the audiences that you've developed that trust through, through sponsorships and through other elements as a media company. You've developed you know, the, the attendees who spend money to come to your events, the sponsors who, again, spend money to access those audiences and get a little bit of a brand halo around what you've been able to create with the audiences you have, and so on and so forth. And you could build literally a spider web of all of the different ways that a singular asset called an audience 
can provide monetization to your company. In the same way, I can do the same thing. I have a small audience that I have through my email list and through the clients that I serve and through the ability for me to speak through Content Marketing Institute and the things that I do and sell books and sell subscriptions to my little community, all those kinds of things. And what I do out of that is those people come to trust me for the advice that I provide. And at some point, they want to pay me for that. And that becomes a much easier way for me to monetize than going out and every single time having to cold call or do the kinds of selling that I would normally have to do as an independent person. By building a community, what I'm doing is just making it easier for myself to monetize my business. And that's at the heart of what content marketing is for any size business, is just making it easier for us to monetize the communities and the customers that we have, whether that's helping them stay longer if we're in a subscription-based model or helping them buy more readily or buy more trustingly or buy more in, in a faster way or reach more people, you know, have them evangelize our, our message across so many of their social networks. And it's just a tremendous benefit. It doesn't replace what we're doing in advertising and direct marketing and cold calling and selling. It doesn't replace that. It provides a flywheel effect or a foundational element to all of those things. I mean, as we said, I don't know, 15 years ago, <laughs> the, the metaphor is that content marketing is like butter. By itself, eh, it's okay. But on top of things, it's amazing. It makes everything else taste better. I love that. I love that analogy. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about subscriptions, I think about obviously first and foremost email subscriptions, because that's my biggest thing that I have here at Social Media Examiner. But I also think about podcast subscribers, right? Which we now call followers because somebody decided to change that phrase. But the idea that this interview is going to show up to tens of thousands of people on their podcast player of choice when they're ready to listen to it is kind of a big deal, right? And I own the email list. I own the RSS feed, right? Which distributes my content. When I think about YouTube, ah, we've got about 300,000 subs, but it doesn't really mean anything because you and I both know that that is a vanity metric that ultimately doesn't guarantee you any distribution. Same thing across the social platforms. We've got 600 here, 500,000 here. It, it, those kind of subscribers are I, I would think not the kind of subscribers that you're talking about, but, you know, physical attendees at a conference, that's people putting their money where their mouth is, right? Are there any other kinds of content distribute owned media? I think I hit the big ones, right? But still, I know a lot of people are crushing it with LinkedIn newsletters, even though they're acknowledging that they don't really own that list. LinkedIn owns that list. Is there any other kind of subscribers that I've forgotten about that are important to consider? Email? SMS. The way to think about it is, do you have the ability to reach them on your terms and independent of platform, right? So yes, a podcast can be an owned media experience if people have to subscribe in order to get it. You know, I think of, I'm forgetting his name, but he's uh, a Sam, uh, great thought leader, wonderful, wonderful podcaster thinking of his name. Also. Oh, The Hustle? You're talking about the guy from The Hustle? No, Sam, uh, <laughs> it'll come back to me. But the way you get his podcast is that you go subscribe via his site, right? In other words, oh. you become an, an addressable audience to go listen to his podcast. It's subscriber only, right? Okay. Whereas a subscriber to your podcast or a follower, as you appropriately point out to your podcast on Apple, iTunes, or Spotify, that's Spotify's audience. That's, that's Apple's audience. And ultimately, you're slave to the algorithm there. If Spotify decides to kick you off or go away or whatever, you're SOL. You don't have anything. LinkedIn, same thing. Facebook, same thing. Instagram, same thing. Any of the social media platforms, same same thing. 
what you hope in building those audiences on YouTube or a, a podcast or a or social media platform is that what you're doing is treating them like a river, right? Where they flow into becoming an addressable, you know, and you mentioned a great one, which would be event attendee, right? Event attendee is a form of owned media audience, subscribed audience, because they're giving you access to them physically in this particular case. And then ultimately, I'm sure through their registration, through their address, through their email address and through their phone number and all those kinds of things so that you can address them ongoing. Now, it's up to you to keep that relationship alive and well and healthy, but that's the definition. And so if you start thinking about, well, what are the alternative forms with everything from print, you know, subscription to a print magazine or to a print newsletter, or you've got attendance to webinars, attendance to digital events that you have, you've got members of a community, which is often the case where you've got members of your community who are co-creating things with you, but also serve as an addressable audience for some other kinds of things as well. So there's any number of platforms independent of the actual format of the content or the channel that can be. The key is, do you know them? Do Have they shared their information with you to allow you to address them when you want to address them, not only through the algorithm or through some ombudsman like a Facebook or a, you know Apple podcasts or a YouTube or Google? Okay. As of about the day this publishes, it will have been almost exactly one year. I know, right? Which was November 30th. I do. You know where I'm going with this. November 30th of last year, that ChatGPT kind of rocked the world. Let's spend a few minutes talking about how AI could alter our content strategy and what your thoughts are on AI when it comes to content and strategy and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it's it's a big, big, big topic and one that <laughs> so many people are talking about. I mean, you can't, you know, you, you throw a rock and hit somebody who's now an AI consultant for you. Right. <laughs> so, and teaching you how to prompt better. And what we've been saying is that, you know, and all the data that I've seen in the research begin to, are really showing this. Even So a year in, the hype level is high. The actual execution at the business side is still relatively low. In other words, everybody's talking about it, but there are really very few companies that are actually really doing it. When you say doing it, why don't you clarify what you mean by it? I mean, actually using AI-oriented tools to drive better content strategies or marketing strategies, right? I see. Okay. There's a lot of experimentation going on. There's a lot of like, hey, let's play around with ChatGPT or let's play around with BARD or let's play around with this and see what happens. And in so many cases, at least our experience and the clients that we deal with, mid-sized and large organizations, what we're finding is, is that there's still a lot of really, you know, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty, and a lot of doubt around what generative AI specifically is really going to bring. And a lot of that fear, uncertainty, and doubt comes from the hype, comes from the missteps that have been sort of hyped up in the, in the rollout, the things like accuracy and are we actually stealing content or are we scraping content and there's copyright issues and there's legal issues and there's all kinds of things that have yet to be settled. So what we're finding is, is that there's still a lot of trepidation in terms of making it a thing, like to our very earliest part of our conversation, like making it an integrated part of our strategy uh, for you know, developing marketing um, as, a, as, a, as a set of activities. Having said that, what we've been talking about is for those that are looking for AI readiness, like what does it mean to be AI ready and start building that roadmap for what your team looks like? At its heart, this is a content strategy. 
And what I mean by that is, is that the biggest problem that we see in the experimentation is, is that nobody knows whether they're improving anything. In other words, should we fire our writers? Should we not? Will our writers be 30% more effective or will they not? Will we be doing things that we're not going to be doing? Nobody knows because why? Because there's no existing content strategy or no existing process or set of documented activities. In other words, we haven't done the work, the core work of creating a content strategy to know what processes would be improved with the insertion or injection of generative AI as a, as a thing. So all we know is, is that, yeah, I can do stuff that I didn't do before, or I can actually do things better than I can do before, but I don't really know what I'm getting myself into. We've, you know, we've worked with a couple of clients that have done this sort of, you know, content strategy work vis-a-vis a AI readiness sort of initiative. And the interesting thing is after we did all of the content strategy work, after we did all the use cases, what we found was AI is extremely powerful, but it was actually going to add work and add the need for additional resources to their content team, not take any away because it had all these amazing capabilities like persona research and topic research and the kinds of interactive things that we can do for derivative content and all the wonderful things that you've heard of. But these are things that they weren't doing before. And it wasn't going to save them any time in coming up with great ideas. It was going to come up with some interesting new capabilities that they would have in understanding what those right ideas were and how they might approach it to different personas. But that's work that they weren't doing before. So it's actually adding hours to their day, not necessarily taking hours away, which could be a great thing. So the key is, is that we have to look at what the profitability is going to be of injecting AI, not just what you know stuff it can replace. Because if we only look at it as the stuff that we can replace, you're going to be very disappointed with the results. Thank you for that. One of the questions I've got related to this is, do you believe, like I believe, and of course, this is a weighted question. <laughs> Leading the witness. That AI is going to force some of our old strategies to be reconsidered because of patterns that are happening with declining search traffic because of everybody's getting their answers better from ChatGPT than they ever got from Google, dot, 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 dot. Talk to me about that side of it, because I do want to wake some of our audience up to the actual, like, you got to get this figured out kind of thing, because it's changing and you may not even be aware of it, right? It's a great point. No, it's such a great point. You know, and I think the honest answer there is, I don't know how it's going to change, but we can know pretty fundamentally that it's going to change. I literally this week, I don't know if you've been on it for some time, you tend to be a little ahead of these things than I do. But I literally this week got invited to the Google search engine, sort of, I guess they're calling it a beta test or whatever, where AI is now included in your Google search results. And so every time I do a search now, I get the AI answer at the top of the search page. And I get then the classic Google results underneath it. And it's fascinating when the research results come in, you can see the AI sort of working at the top. And then Normally where there would be paid, you know, sort of as there's that sort of now knowledge graph, you know, that's coming in via the BARD, I'm assuming, and basically providing the answer to my question. And I'm finding very mixed results in terms of the, you know, accuracy or value of that information. And it's just, it's a fascinating thing to me. And so the real key here is questions in terms of our strategy going forward is it's a very different use case. It's a very different use case for search 
and what we have come to believe over the last 20 years of what search really means, which, you know, one of my earliest product developments was a site search, was website search back in the era. Believe it or not, kids, we actually used to develop site search engines because Google didn't allow you to do that. But hey, so we actually developed site search. And one of the lessons that I really learned there was the difference between when you search a website or an intranet versus when you're searching the internet, right? The use case is slightly different. When you're searching the internet, what you want is to maximize the amount of answers that you get. You want to maximize the breadth of answers that you get because what you want as a consumer of that information is breadth of information so that you can select what you think is the best choice. When you're questioning an intranet or when you're questioning a website, what you want is the answer. Like you want, I don't want a range of answers. I want the answer because I have a very specific thing that I'm looking for in that intranet or in that digital asset management repository or in that website. And so that's the key difference between the use case of Google search as we know it today and ChatGPT. And I can see this happening even in my outside baseball audience, you know, meaning my wife and my family and how they're using it, right? So they, if they want an answer to something, you know, what are the side effects of XYZ drug? They're asking ChatGPT. They're going, what are the side effects? And they're getting an answer. But if they want like, what's the best Mexican restaurant in San Diego, they go to Google and search for it and, and get, you know, sort of a, a list of, of answers because they want the breadth of answers there. Very different use case. However, from a content perspective, from a marketing perspective, what it means is the same thing. We have to be the answer. We have to be the source of interesting, engaging things so that we become part of the learning model that answers the question for our consumers and that hopefully, and we'll see where this goes, we are the ones cited as the source of that interesting thing so that people continue to trust us for the authoritative answer. That's why I don't believe that I think the, the, the companies like Disney and some of the other media companies that are blocking the LLM spiders are making a smart decision. I don't think they're making a smart decision at all because all they're doing is ensuring that their answers aren't the answers that are going to be, you know, they're going to rely on the rest of the internet to provide the accuracy. It's a very similar business case that we saw back in 1999 when it was like, should we let Google spider our websites? Well, yeah, if you want to be found. Well, and you know, this is a really good point you brought up. I do think that most people that are doing search are looking for the answer, not a bunch of answers, right? And eventually, we've already seen this happening specifically with Google where they have these snippets at the top, right? Where they basically borrow the best content, throw it up at the top, which is like the early warning system, if you will, to many of us that create these great pieces of content with the hope that maybe if we get the chosen snippet, maybe they'll want to click through and keep reading. But now I think where it's going is so much of what we search for, like when we're watching a TV show or when we're just randomly pulling up our phone to do something, it's going to be replaced, not with a litany of answers, but with an answer. Yeah. And I got a feeling that's going to crush a lot of content marketing strategy because a lot of people that are trying to optimize for search queries are going to have to rethink everything. And, you know, the data is in. I've talked to a lot of publishers who are seeing massive declines in their search traffic in, since November of last year. And, you know, you look at how much traffic there that ChatGPT is pulling in and all these other systems like Claude and everything else. And I do think that, uh, you know, there's something happening here and we just have to process that. Lots of things to talk about there. I want to ask one more question on an AI related topic, which is the creation of content. 
let's talk about using AI to create content. If we should, you know, let's just assume we're going to use it in some capacity. Any thoughts on like a good way to use AI to help with the creation of content, whether it be from the very ideation stage to the finishing stages or anywhere in between? What's your thoughts? You know, it's it's one of those things where I think it's a work in progress for sure. So the way I've been explaining it and the way that I personally uh, am, am approaching it, <laughs> there's a wonderful, there's a, I didn't invent this, so it's, a, but basically it's a, it was a critique of Charles Dickens going back. So I'm an English lit grad, so forgive me for that. But there was a critique of uh, Charles Dickens' work, and he was talking about writing and creating novels and those kinds of things. What he said was he separated content and the idea of this into two categories. He called it created content and constructed content. And I love that differentiation. The differentiation is this, is created content is that which is loved before it's created. In other words, you have an idea, you have a thought, you have an expression that you want to express to the world. And so you create that idea from scratch and you express it to the world. Constructed content is content that is loved only after it is created. And so the way I think of that is content that you have to create in order to communicate something, a street sign, a dictionary, an encyclopedia, a how-to manual, an abstract to a webinar. You might love it, but you're only going to, you're not going to love doing the thing. You're going to love the thing after it's done. It's constructed content. I think Gen AI is a great candidate for constructed content. Anything that needs to get constructed, like how-to manuals or the idea of law, you know, looking at the law and writing legal opinions or looking at contracts or looking at all the kinds of things that are constructed pieces of content that ultimately will help us as humans. So I think that's a great candidate for that. I think AI is not a great candidate for the creation of created content, that which needs to be loved before it's created. One, because AI content will always be derivative because it is always looking to that which has existed before in order to create the thing that is new. So it's always going to be derivative. It may be an original idea or a fresh idea, but it will always be constructed. Now, you can argue that that's the same for humans as well, that humans don't, there's no such thing as an original idea. It's only the way that humans put them together that's original. But to me, it gets to the second point, which is that's what I want to do as a human. That's what I want to do. If I don't want to delegate that to an AI. I have no reason to want to delegate that to an AI because the reason I do what I do is I want to express and have love for the things that I want to create. So as a job or as a, as a business or as an artist, that remains the thing that I want to do and I value. And then you say, okay, well, what's the difference in value to the audience of something that you created versus something that AI created? And I say, it's nothing unless you don't put any value in the storyteller. In other words, if it's a book created and authored by Stephen King, if he used an AI to create it and it's created by Stephen King and he puts his name on it, if it's good, I'm going to love it just as much as something that he would create. I'm probably, if I'm Stephen King, I'm probably not going to love it as much. But if I'm, if I'm an audience, eh, not that much. But if it's and something created by Stephen King and he puts his, audience, his signature on it or his author's name on it, and I know it's created by him, I put much more value in it. In other words, I put much more value in something because of the storyteller, not just the story being told. So that's, to me, 
the real difference. And so when I try and make a discernment in my own life, that's how I use generative AI to determine whether or not the content should be created by AI or by me. I find actually at this stage of generative AI, creating content is the least interesting thing it does to me. I find it much more interesting to bounce ideas off, use it as a research assistant, think of, of, of ways for me to think about things that I hadn't thought of before, assemble patterns, sort of really use it as an idea generator or a research assistant rather than sort of as an author. I, I, I find it much more valuable in the former, not the latter. I'm with you 100% on that. Robert, this has been a fascinating conversation that hopefully a lot of people has got their minds like rolling and thinking. And I know there's going to be some people that are going to want to reach out to you. So where do you want to send them if they want to connect with you? Do you have a preferred social platform? And also, do you have any websites you want to send them to? Oh, you're very kind for asking about all of that. You're so kind. Yes. Yeah, so, so on the consulting side of things, there's our little hovel on the web called contentadvisory.net. It's where we have our consulting as well as, you know, things for businesses to interact with, you know, sort of our more enterprise sorts of ideas. And then we're also, I'm really super psyched, you know, along with the new book that I wrote, we've also launched our coaching program, which is for practitioners and for marketing leaders, individuals to get help. That's at contentmarketingstrategy.com. So it's a, it's, you know, you can literally book time with me online right there in the coaching program itself. And then finally, yeah, would love to connect with everybody. LinkedIn, um, I'm off Twitter. I've cut the cord. I am now off Twitter completely. I'm leaning into LinkedIn, which I love. I'm having a grand time over on LinkedIn and leaning into threads, sort of seeing where all, all of that goes. Outstanding. Robert Rose, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights with us today. No, thank you so much for having me. It's always such a fun, 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 fun time with you. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 591. If you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. If you've been a longtime listener, would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter slash X. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best out of your day and may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.